Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. Welcome to this most fabulous episode of So Many White Guys from WNYC Studios. I'm here in the studio with Joni Mitch. Joni Mitch? Should I do that? (laughs) I was trying to add like a morning DJ. That's your morning DJ? Joni Mitch? Who's going to be like, here in the studio, <laughs> you guys, the morning zoo. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess I was cut out for public radio then. <laughs> no, try again. Now that you know. Joni. I'll say that's an improvement. Okay. Most improved. Have you ever been on like a terrible morning radio show? Um, No. But I, I don't do a lot of morning radio. I'm sure when I do um, my stand-up tour and I have to do some morning radio, then I'll be like, can I just cancel this date? <laughs> There's just like a belch sound yeah. that randomly cuts in in the middle of your interview. <laughs> you're like, Welcome, Phoebe Lynn Robinson. <laughs> you're like, okay, great. Well, I want to talk about Jesse Smollett, but then you said that, so we won't. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, my boyfriend was a touring musician and he'd have to do morning appearances all the time on like these random midwestern morning shows and he said they were just terrible what instrument does he play the bass oh oh Uh, oh is it like jazz bass is like boom 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 no it's like um it's like Like flea he's just like flea oh my god actually (laughs) flea's incredible though by the way he's so good he's so good he's just like a little wild man yeah and the guy who's a drummer what's his name the one who looks like Will Will Ferrell Ferrell. yeah what's his name I'm gonna look it up Um, Chad Smith oh Chad Smith he is quite a name I saw him at yeah I think it was Bonnaroo with Jessica and I was like when Chad is playing drums I'm like DTF he's like so hot I was like holy f*** I was like, whoa, bro. I love the idea of you just like holding a candle for Chad. <laughs> I like musicians. I really do. Chris Bakoff used to play. He used to be um, as a drummer in like a, a scream metal band. What? Yeah, he had like a lip piercing. He had like a shaggy like Bieber haircut. I was like, I would have not dated you if you still looked like that. British Bake Off contains multitudes. <laughs> he does. Every time you tell me something about him, I'm like, what? There's always a new, like, an entirely new dimension I know. to British Bake Off. And he won't play any of his music for me because he was like, we were so bad. I knew we weren't going to make it. And I was like, oh, he's like, it's fine. <laughs> I've moved on. <laughs> but yeah, now he, uh, he just plays the guitar. I got him a guitar for his birthday. And so he'll just like, you know. He was, like, picking up some, like, U2 songs. He's like, these songs are all easy. And I was like, go fuck yourself. Don't drag my first love like that. When he's playing, are you ever like, hey, British Bake Off, why don't you put these glasses on? <laughs> and maybe a hat. 
No. <laughs> I should though. He's like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> Okay, listen, Joni Mitch, we could talk all the damn day. True. About Bono. Mm. <laughs> could we? Or about just life. Okay. But I could really, I could at least talk like for five hours about you two. The fact that you haven't done a TED Talk on Bono yet is <gasps> oh amazing. Oh my God, that's such a good idea. Such a great idea. Do you think anyone would go to it? Let's talk about that at the commercial break. <sighs> bye bye <laughs> Joni Mitch. Yeah, Phoebes. How excited are you about having Trev Trev on our show today? Wait, I'm sorry, who? Trev Trev. No, no? What? Trevor Noah. I was trying oh. to be cool. You got to give the listeners more than that, you know? That and me, <laughs> frankly. You don't think Trev Trev is going to trend on Twitter? Listen, I... <laughs> A friend of mine was trying to learn English, and they were listening to Two Dope Queens, and they asked, what is Sochmeads? And I had to be like, that's not real. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Excuse me. That is all the way real. Sochmeads. Sochmeads. <laughs> it stands for social media. Hungs stands for hungry. Tai Tai stands for tired. Soups monog stands for super monogamous. Um, presentation stands for presentation, relationship. Amen, Phoebe. The point is, you guys, I'm very excited about Trav Trav. Now that you've said his name, it's fine. It's cute, It right? is cute. It's cute. I'm so excited to have him on the show because he is, I mean, just such a part of pop culture. And I think, you know, we all know him as the host of The Daily Show, um, which is like really cool. He's been doing that for what two years now, three years, three and a half. Yeah. So have you ever like? Did you ever do stand up together or anything? You never no. have overlap before. We didn't because he was already a big deal by the time he got to the states. Like mm-hmm. I remember um, when I first heard about him was when he had his one man show. So yeah. he was already like you know did like late night sets and blah yeah. blah blah. But do you remember the first time? No, no came into your life? No, no. I mean, the whole, I just remember the buildup of being like, who's going to replace John Stewart? I would say that was like a culture moment was like, who's going to be next? And I actually wasn't familiar with Trevor Noah at mm. all before he started doing it, but he was a great yeah. choice. He's amazing. He's so funny. Um, he is also good to the podcast space. I'm feeling a little threatened, but you know what? I'm going to support Trev Trev. There's room for everyone, Phoebe. He's a sweet treat. He is a necessary voice. He has a new podcast coming out called On Second Thought, the Trevor Noah Podcast. On Luminary. Cause he bright baby. He illuminates. That was nice. I mean, you know. Yeah, he's also the author of this amazing memoir. It's called Born a Crime. And basically it's about how under apartheid it was illegal for uh black people and white people to have sex and have kids. Um Trevor has a black mom and a white dad and so basically growing up in South Africa he was considered evidence of this like quote unquote crime um it's a really really amazing book um a it's a really good book yeah b's a new york times bestseller and freaking c he's turning into a movie and guess who's going to play his mama 
Who's going to play his mama? Lupi P. <laughs> Phoebe. Just say, say her name, Phoebe. Who is it? Lupita Nyong'o. There you go. I know. I'm just super impressed by him and mm-hmm. so excited about the, the interview. Yeah. He is he's come a long way and he is just sort of making such a wonderful space in, you know, comedy and everything. Like his correspondents on the Daily Show are like so diverse, yeah. women, men, people of all ethnicities. So it's like really cool. He's also interviewed you before, right? Yes, I've been on his show twice. Awesome. Yeah, so that was, like, super fun. Yeah. But I also just want to go back to the Lupita P. Yeah. I will say when she was on the HBO show, Two Dope Queens, and I called her Lupita P., she did not like it. No, she didn't. <laughs> Phoebe was like, can I call you Pete Pete? And she, uh, Lupita Nyong'o was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> she literally just said absolutely not and then threw shade at you and Jessica the entire time for how bad you were at braiding hair. <laughs> you know what, For judging Lupita, your hair braiding, hair braiding skills. You know what, Lupita? You are bomb at that. Let's do a call to action, Lupita. All right. Let's see if she is good at stuff that I'm good at. Like what, Phoebe? Folding I, laundry. I can, <laughs> I can watch eight hours of Real Housewives of Atlanta in a row and not need a bathroom break. I'm so inspired right now. I mean, so I'm just saying, yes, born a crime, also inspirational, but so am I. (laughs) (laughs) Way to bring that all together. God damn. Hi. Well, hello. How are you? Fantastic. This is my podcast voice. Ooh, I mean... I think you're nailing it. My dream has always been to have the podcast voice. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this podcast. My name is Trevor, and today we're talking about something really interesting. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for doing so many white guys. I know you are in the thick of it today at The Daily Show, so I appreciate you taking time out. Um, I I think I last saw you in L.A. at the uh, Vanity Fair Oscar after party. Mm-hmm. But you totally killed it at the Oscars. Black Panther may be an African hero, but his story and his appeal are universal. I know this personally because of all the people who constantly come up to me and say, Wakanda forever. <laughs> Everywhere in the world, my African friends are like, Wakanda forever. In France, I've had people say, Hello, Trevor Noah, you say Wakanda forever, no? Even backstage, Mel Gibson came up to me like, Wakanda forever. He said another word after that, but the Wakanda part was nice. (laughs) Growing up as a young boy in Wakanda, I would see King T'Challa flying over our village, and he would remind me of a great Kosa phrase, which means in times like these, we are stronger when we fight together than when we try to fight apart. This is Best Picture nominee, Black Panther. It was, it was great. fun. Yeah. It was really, really fun. Yeah, you yeah, got to... Had a good time. Yeah, you got to do, like, a funny bit on the Oscars that sort of kind of went viral. Do you want to talk about how you came up with that? So I was obviously asked to present mm-hmm. Black Panther mm-hmm. for their nomination for um, Best Film. And and so I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I was like, well, I'll, I'll make a joke. And I thought, you know what would be cool is to try and make a joke specifically for the people at home <sighs> that would only be funny if you're at home and you're connected to the internet and do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, just trying to figure out different ways to tell a joke to people. 
Because a lot of the time it feels like jokes at the award shows are just for the award show people. And mm-hmm. at home you're just like, oh, nah, must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I was like, well, what could I do? And then I was like, it would be funny if I say something in Hossa, you know, the language they mm-hmm. speak in Black Panther, but then just make something else up. And then, the, the you know, the people in the audience were like, oh, that's great. And then the people at home who were listening... Some people suspected it, and South Africans were definitely like, that's not what he said. Yeah. <laughs> He's lying. No, I bring it up because I think one of the great things about you is you play a lot with language and identity. And we're living in a time where, like, more people are, you know, biracial or multiracial or at least identifying that way openly mm-hmm. about it. And, you know, tons of people are speaking right, multiple right, right. languages. And I think what is good about that you do it is you use it through comedy, which I think is a great way to connect people, even if they don't necessarily agree with you or they haven't thought about something the way that you have. You sort of bring them into your side a little bit. Oh, thank so they, you. Yeah, and I think they at least see your humanity, whether or not, if they, if their minds aren't changed, they can't go, I don't get Trevor. They can go, I may right, not agree right. with him, but I understand where he's coming from. So do you feel like that's always been something that's sort of been percolating around your comedy? Yeah, you know, I've, mm-hmm. always, I've always found that if you can try and process information with the understanding that most people think that they're right from their point of view, then I find it becomes a lot easier for you to make a joke that may connect with somebody you don't agree with or may, you know, uh, hit on a deeper truth. And so what I love about language is, first of all, it makes you think differently. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think anybody has the exact same personality in every single language if they speak multiple languages. I also find that speaking another language humbles me because I'm far from fluent, you Mm -hmm. know. So every other language I speak other than English is me humbling myself. I have to go back to not understanding words. I have to go back to being just imperfect. I have to, I have to practice, and I and 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 I stumble, and I and and I'm I'm not as good as I'd like to be. And I I think that's a that's a really valuable idea to have as mm-hmm. a human being. Um, you know, you you don't exist in any superior space when you learn other languages. You're always at the mercy of the of the native speakers. And so, what I love about playing with language and and accents and people and ideas is just thinking of the world not just told through, you know, one storyteller's lens, but through the different prisms that everybody see the world through. And I, like, I, I enjoy that because, uh, you know, I realized for a long time, I think people people always think that a story is the story, but you don't realize that everyone can tell a story about the story from their point of view, and it yeah. changes completely depending on who you speak to. Yeah. Okay, so I want to sort of talk about your, your journey into comedy because I, I think it's pretty fascinating. Like, you did a soap opera, which... What was that like? Did you have fun? And how did you get on a, a soap opera? <laughs> so that was that was all chance. I guess that's life. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I was taking a gap year. Well, I guess a gap year was imposed on me. I, I'd finished high school mm-hmm. and I wanted to go to university. We couldn't afford it. And my mom made me a deal. She said, listen, I'll do whatever I need to do to pay for your school, but I need you to be invested. So if you can get half the money, I'll pay the other half. I was like, okay, that's fair enough. I'll, I'll I'll get a job and I'll find a way. And bouncing around looking for a job one day, my cousin said to me, hey, I've started this new thing where I'm an extra. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm a background extra. What I do is I, I go to TV shows and I stand in the background. I was like, okay, well, does it pay? And he's like, yeah. 
it pays a hundred bucks a day and you get free food. And I was like, what? This sounds like the sweetest deal in the world. How is everybody not doing this? Why is anybody in an office when you can just stand in the background and then get free food? And so I said, I want to join. And he said, all right, well, here's my agency. And I went to join them at this agency. And, uh, you know, I was now what they refer to as a background artiste. <laughs> and my first gig, I was meant to go and be a background extra at a soap opera. And I got to the, the TV studios and I walked in and we're signing in. And then a woman comes over and she said, excuse me, are you here for the, for the soap opera? And I was like, yep. She's like, all right, come this way. And she took me over to a little room and I walked into the room and there were like seven other guys who looked exactly like me, but just slightly different. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is, this is weird. I wonder what this is. And I didn't realize that I had just stepped into a casting because this woman had assumed that I was coming for the casting because I fit the description of the character that day. Right. And right. so instead of going to the to the the background extras area, I went into a casting and they gave me a script and I was like, man, script is like I'm in the background. These guys take it so seriously. I gotta learn a script just to talk in the background. <laughs> and so I learned the script and I got called in and they, they rolled the camera and they like, you ready? And I did the script and I was like, man, these people are really serious about about background extras. <laughs> And then I got a call a week later, and it was my my extras agent, and she was furious. She was like, did you go to a casting? I was like, what? She's like, you never meant to go to a casting. You stand in the background. How dare you? I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, they want to hire you for this part, but you're not an actor. You, you're a background extra, so you, you're fired from this agency. And she fired me from the agency. As a background extra, but I had the job now. Yeah, I had the job, so I was like, "All right, I'll, I guess I'll go and I'll go and act." And then I, I I showed up. I had no clue what was going on, none whatsoever. And I just showed up where they told me to show up, and I had a call sheet, and then I did the lines, and I did it all, and I got paid. And from that, I got a TV agent, and I guess that changed my life forever because then I, you know, I started presenting TV shows, I started acting. But I, I, I completely fell into it. I had no clue what this world was about. And then I couldn't be a background extra anymore because they don't allow you to do that once you've been in front of the camera. And so <laughs> that, that was my dream, dashed. I love how you're like, well, can I still do background just a little bit sometimes? And they're like, I, I no. love it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love it so much. I love doing like random things in movies. Yeah. Like it's, just, it's such a fun world. I, like I just want to be the voice like I would like to be in like a crowd, you know, like in in like Gladiator. Mm -hmm. I just want to be in the crowd cheering, kill him, <laughs> kill him, dad, yeah, bring out the lions. I just want to be those guys. <laughs> I feel like they have more fun than anybody. It's just like, you know, there's no there's no messing up your lines. You just have to be angry. You're just screaming in the background. You know, one day I want to be like in a cafe when James Bond comes speeding by in in his Aston Martin. I just want to be the guy who's sitting there having coffee. And then the car comes speeding by and then I just have to jump out of the way. Come on! I just want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I think you can I want to win an Oscar higher. for my background acting. That's what I want to do. That would be an amazing category. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and then you were hosting like dating shows and dance shows in South Africa. And then you were also doing stand-up around this time too, correct? Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so... How did you get into stand-up? I don't think we've ever really talked about how you got into stand-up. No, stand-up was yeah. random. Yeah. I, um, again, 
something I just fell into. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's like the story of my life. Um, I was living with my cousin mm-hmm. and a best friend at the time. We had like a a house that we rented. We all lived separately first, and then I guess we watched a lot of Entourage, and we we're like, "This is the dream." We're gonna live together in a house and throw parties all the time. And while we were living there, one day my friend Nico said to me, "Hey man, we're gonna go to a comedy show. Do you want to come?" And I was like, "A comedy show? What do you, what do you mean?" And he's like, "What's well, like a stand-up comedy show?" And we didn't really have many of those in South Africa at that time. So I was like, "Yeah, whatever. I'll come. I'll come along." And I went, and it was a random show in a like in a room. Um, you know, like it's usually a restaurant and. Guys had set up like a little makeshift stage in the corner and they were telling jokes. And on that night, the jokes were not going well. And my cousin who was sitting with us, he was really drunk and he started like heckling and so did my friend Nico. And they were like, this is boring, boo, you know. <laughs> and the host of the show came down and he was friends with them, but but he was still like angry. And he's like, come on, guys, you're killing us here, man. He's like, you know how hard we're working? You know how hard we work? This is not easy. And my cousin was like, yeah, but you guys are horrible. And he's like, oh, man, you think it's easy? Why don't you come on stage? And so my cousin was like, well, I'm, I'm not funny, but my, my, my friend over here, Trevor, is. And he's like, Trevor could tell jokes. And I was like, man, what are you doing? I'm sober. Don't involve me. And, and the host was like, yeah, why don't you get on stage if you think it's so easy? And I was like, look, I don't think it's easy. My friends are drunk. I'm sorry. And he was like, no, no, why don't you do it? You chicken? And I was like, oh, man, now we've got to do the whole chicken thing. And so then just it was just literally like just bravado and us trying to defend our honor. And then I, I got on stage and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. And my cousin was just like, tell the story about the TV, the broken TV. And then I just told the audience a story about like when I went to get my TV fixed, you know, and it was like at some Nigerian shop and it was just it was just a story and the audience killed themselves. And I told another story and that worked as well. (laughs) And then finally I got off stage and the host of the show was really nice to me. He was like, hey, man, you should you should do this. And he's like, if you want help, I'll help you, but you should definitely do this. And he gave me a few contacts and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, and what's so cool is, like, you yeah, you do, like, typical, like, set-up punchline jokes, but then you also tell, like, these longer stories. Like, I think about whenever I watch, like, your stand-up specials. Like, it's really, you're, like, a master storyteller. Oh, thank you. And so you've you got, like, a lot of fans along the way. And I, I read somewhere that when Jon Stewart first contacted you about The Daily Show, you actually turned him down, which is hilarious to me because for a while when I was starting out doing stand-up I was so desperately trying to get on The Daily Show and I was <laughs> horrible in my audition and so you you told me you weren't interested in coming to New York to me uh, about the show so why did you turn them down at first and then what eventually clicked in your head where you're like all right maybe I should give this a try no I, I turned him down not knowing firstly how big The Daily Show was mm-hmm. and also because I had just started touring in the UK and so in order to come and join The Daily Show back then, I would have had to give up my touring in the United Kingdom and in Australia. And I was mm. like, no, I, I've just started growing fans. I've just started, you know, building support in these other countries. And I don't take that for granted at all. Yeah, You know, if people are buying tickets to come and see you, like that's, as you know better than anyone, that's not a... It's not something you should ever take lightly. I, I respect every single fan that comes out and supports me at a show. And I don't care who you are, where you come from. If you've paid for a ticket and you're sitting in my show, I will make sure that I give you the best possible comedy experience that I can. And so for me, 
you know, yes, there's the allure of going to be on American TV. But I was like, yeah, but this is what I've worked my entire life for, to yeah. be able to do stand-up comedy anywhere in the world. And so, you know, I was like, yes, thank you, John Stewart, for this offer. But I, I'm going to tell these people jokes. And um, and he was shocked, but he understood at the same time. You yeah. know, he was like, hey, man, I mean, I, I didn't think you'd turn me down, but I get it. And he said, well, let's let's speak another time when you're not telling jokes. And I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll hear from you. Maybe I won't. And I, I genuinely thought that was the end of the conversation. And then a year later, we we linked up again because I came to New York to do my shows. And then, you know, his people reached out and they were like, hey, John still wants you to come by. Do you want to pop into the show? And I was like, all right, cool. And so I popped in, you know, and we had a we had a great conversation. And you know, John is like a really funny guy. Like mm-hmm. people forget how funny John Stewart is. Like a lot of people know him for his gravitas and his great insights into American politics and and everything that goes on in the news. But he's also one of the funniest, silliest human beings you will ever come across in your life. And so we just we just hit it off. Two guys from different parts of the globe you know, with different upbringings, sharing similar opinions on what was happening in the world today. And that was really fun and interesting. And John was like, hey, we should do this on TV. And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And that's literally how it began. I love that story. It's so cute. (laughs) It's so great. I want to talk about a clip that I, I really loved. Just as a quick background for people who aren't aware between taping segments on the daily show like you'll take questions from the audience which i think is always so brilliant and fun and you answered this audience member's question about reparations which i feel like you know every few years the reparations talk sort of reemerges right and right. now it's kind of more prevalent because it seems like every sort of democratic nominee is like yeah i'm pro reparations which you're sort of mm-hmm. like not that I'm distrustful of it, but I'm like, it just feels sort of like, <laughs> oh, all of you now are on board with this. It feels a little, I, I'm not sure about that. But I think what's great is that you were able to sort of give an overview because I still feel like there are some non-African-American people in this country who don't quite understand like the concept behind reparations and they sort of see it as uh, a handout. So can you sort of talk about how you answer their audience member's question and sort of why you think people still aren't getting reparations and what it's intended for. Well, I think to understand people's resistance to the idea, you have to go back to how the idea has been branded. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand why most people in America are against it, especially white people, you know, when Mm -hmm. they've, when they've done the polling, I can see why, because Many people go like, I don't understand. What do you mean reparations? Who are we going to pay? Do I pay? You know, because a lot of politicians have phrased it that way. They go like, you are going to have to pay black people for what? No, that's not how anything works, you know, when it comes to government and 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 paying people. I mean, when, when America paid Japanese people who are in internment camps and their families, that didn't come from average Americans' pockets, you know, that you have a government and you have a budget for a reason. Um you know, when the government had the GI Bill, when people came back from fighting wars and they and they helped American veterans pay for their schools and their houses, etc., that that didn't come from people's pockets. That's mm-hmm. why you pay taxes and that's why budgets are allocated. And I, I think the larger conversation around reparations maybe has gone beyond the point of, you know, acres and a mule. I think the the conversation people don't seem to understand is that 
black people in America have been in a position where repeatedly there have been laws and measures that have held them black, uh, held them back. Oh, excuse the the mm-hmm. Freudian I slip. I love that. But um, <laughs> held them black. Yeah, I love but that. In, intentionally. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like, and it's it's not like a mistake. Mm-hmm. These were laws designed. So you you have slavery, and then you have Jim Crow, and you have redlining, and you have you have all of these laws that are specifically designed to hold black people back. And when you look at that knock-on effect, if you know anything about not just generating but building wealth, you'll know that wealth is a generational journey that mm-hmm. you're on. You'll know that you know having a parent that goes to college will increase the likelihood that your child will go to college and then increases the likelihood that that and then owning a house means that you have money that you can you can use you've got collateral that you can take out loans and those loans could enable your family to do things and and so if your family was prevented from owning land or owning a house because of laws that were racist in a country then you are prevented from borrowing and if you're prevented from borrowing you have a limit to how much you can grow your net worth you you can't start a business the way other people can and if you look at american history honestly you realize that yes slavery was the most egregious case of how the united states treated black people but it was by no means the final case of where mm-hmm. that happened people mm-hmm. make it seem like slavery ended and then barack obama was president and everything is fine yeah um but i but i think you know reparations should be a larger conversation around how you make right what america as a country did wrong and this is not an indictment of individuals you know i i i'm always i'm always sad when i see you know whether it's fox news or any of them make it seem like they're coming for you white man at home yeah. they're going to want you to pay devon for what your great grandfather did and it's like no it's not about that it's about a country and i i don't think there's anything crazy in that you yeah. know um in many ways if you think about it in life it's like damages yeah and and so i think at least having an honest conversation about that is is something that Americans need to do but i agree with you i think it's interesting that you know a lot of the democratic nominees are jumping on board the conversation but it seems like there are a lot of platitudes that people use when speaking about it it's it's a popular topic but i don't think it's as easy as just saying yeah reparation let's do it yeah um i want to switch gears uh because there's another video online you went back to south africa recently and you were visiting your grandma and you used to live with her often as a child and can you talk about sort of that visit and what it was like to bring cameras in there and just film your interaction with your grandma well it was really interesting mm-hmm. because it it came it came to be in a really organic way you know mm-hmm. i was going back to south africa for the global citizen festival and i was going to visit family obviously and I was going to visit my grand and and while I was down there I was I said to the team I was like guys why don't we why don't we film something I mean we could just put some stuff together I don't know what it will be This is a road I used to drive on pretty much my entire young life because of apartheid uh black people had to live in certain areas and then white people had to live in other areas but white people like how the black people cook so they need them to come to their houses so there were roads that connected the areas and this was one of those roads You know, uh, one of my friends asked me he said, "Well, where are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm going to go visit my grand." And he said, "Do you think she'd let us come with you?" And I was like, "No, well, I, I don't know." And I asked my grand, I said, "Hey, grand, do you mind if, you know, I just hang out with you and and we record this?" And my grand was like, "Yeah, I don't care." You know, she doesn't watch TV. <laughs> she doesn't really <laughs> she doesn't really keep up with what I do. She knows that I do something, but I mean, Does my grand treats it? me like her grandson. Yeah, no, she doesn't really. Okay. Yeah. No, she does she really doesn't, which is fun. You know, she's completely sincere. 
sarcasm is not a tool that she embraces in her world at all. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 it, it was wonderful just sitting down with her and, you know, and, and I'm as cheeky as I've always been with her. And she is as funny as she's always been. She's as sharp as, as, as she was, you know, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And now she's well into her 90s and still, and still doing her thing. What was my contribution? How was, was I fighting apartheid? Not knowing. Not knowing? You are a kid. But you are born a crime. Uh, How could you fight apartheid? But I, I told them that I was an apartheid hero, Coco. I wasn't. <laughs> when you were with me here, uh, oh, Trevor, you gave me a tough time. Why did I give you a tough time, Coco? Because you wanted to play in the street. And I knew the flying squad was going to take me. So if I was playing in the street, the police would have arrested me? Yeah! You know, there were kids who never knew what a white man was. So they thought I was white? They knew you were white. And they ran away. The kids ran away from me? You! But why did they run away? first time they see a white man in the location. So for them, for them, this was white. Yeah. Wow. I feel so special now, Coco. Huh? To know there was a time that I was white. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated just sitting down with somebody to give me some perspective, and I think to give everyone perspective. You know, here you were talking to a black woman who lived in South Africa during the most heinous part of, of, of our history, you know, talking about apartheid and talking about what it was like to be oppressed and providing context. And so that was really nice, just hanging out with her, um, learning things. I mean, I learned things about her life that I didn't know about because, you know, every conversation is an opportunity to learn something new about somebody in your life. And and um, I'm, I'm lucky that my grand spent the time to do that with me. Yeah. Can you share um, something that you learned about her? Well, one of the things I learned that was I mean, it was was harrowing was Mm -hmm. like that people, they would take people away from their homes and you would be forced to work in, um, you know, like, I guess, like labor farms, you know, and you'd be digging for potatoes, you know, oftentimes using your bare hands. And and if someone died from exhaustion, everyone else would just have to bury them where they worked and then just carry on, Mm. you know, farming these potatoes. And I was was just like, how, how was that real life? Yeah. You know, you know, she was telling me stories about how they would come home from work some days and, you know, they'd get off at the train station. And then the whole of of the township where where we grew up was just covered in tear gas. Mm. Her describing the pungency of that smell in the air and just not even knowing what it was the first time. And I mean, those those are really um, gripping images that she, you know, that she left me with. And so, yeah, that was that was really powerful for me. Yeah. So I want to switch to your book quickly just because you mentioned apartheid. And in your book, Born a Crime, you say that apartheid was perfect racism. That's just a sentence that really struck me. And so I I want to talk about why you say that. And also, you know, coming from that perspective and sort of looking at the United States, um, you sort of have the distance of like not growing up here. So can you sort of talk about... Mm -hmm sort of like how you view the racial climate in the States versus apartheid? Well, that's interesting. The reason I called it perfect racism is because what South Africans uh, went through mm-hmm. under the apartheid government was a system of laws that, that, that not only restricted people's movements and freedoms based on the color of their skin, but also defined their lives. 
And it was so meticulous that it went into not just black and white, but black, white, Indian, Chinese, and colored, and Japanese, and every single group was broken down. And colored, as much as that word jumps out to an American, is, is, a, is a normal you know, word in South Africa that mm -hmm. refers to people who share my skin complexion, funny enough. You know, it's people who originally were the descendants of parents who are black and white or mixed in some way. And over time in South Africa, because of the laws, those people became their own race. And so you can imagine this was a world where, like, if you you go to America, they just they just had the one-drop policy in America. Yeah. And that's because in America, you know, you, you had a different dynamic, I think, in terms of the majority versus the minority. So white people in America at the time had no reason to worry about how black a person is. Black was black and you just moved on. In South Africa, because it was the minority oppressing the majority, you had a different conversation and that was how do you prevent them from becoming, you know, an insane number that we can't keep up with. And so what they did was they said if a black person has sex with a white person and they have a baby, then this baby's ne neither black nor white and that baby has its own race. And that became an interesting way to break people down into smaller and smaller groups. Even black people were separated by their tribal designation. And so that's, you know, that's, that's really uh, a precise way to enact racism, which in itself is a ludicrous idea. But they really did um, a good job of what they were trying to do. And, and, and so, you know, when you look at America, America is different, but it's, it's, it's familiar. And I think it's familiar because the architects of apartheid used American racism as a framework for apartheid. They looked at what worked in America, mm -hmm. and what they did was they said, how do we apply that to our country? And so they were very meticulous. They looked at the Netherlands, they looked at America, they looked at Australia, and they said, how do we create the best possible racism using what has worked in these countries and looking at how they failed to be completely racist in theirs? And, and that's how we ended up with the world that we did. So in, in your book and basically your life growing up in South Africa, there were a lot of like, you know, intense moments where, you know, for instance, when you went to your grandmother's house, you couldn't really go outside because you were technically evidence of a crime. Um, but what were mm -hmm. some of your lighter, like maybe favorite moments from growing up as a kid? Oh, those were all my favorite moments. Yeah. Oh, really? That's the thing people don't realize. I always mm. tell people, I go, I, I don't. I don't think of myself as someone who suffered through apartheid. Not mm. at all. My family did. Mm. I was a little kid having a good time. You know, I didn't know that I couldn't go outside because of uh, the police. I thought that I was just inside because my grand just picked me as her favorite grandchild and she didn't want me to go outside. Mm. That was it. You know, I stayed indoors and I entertained myself and sometimes I would dig a hole under the gate and sneak out. And then my grandmother would come into the streets panicking, trying to find me. It was all a game to me. Yeah. You know, and that's... You know, that's a testament to the power of a child's mind and how you can define a person's reality just based on how you treat them and how you treat the world that they live in. I, I had no clue. I had so much fun as a kid. I don't, I don't look back and think to myself, what a tough time I lived through. Yeah. Oh, Phoebe, the tough times I had in apartheid. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I'm just like, yo, man, I was a kid doing kid things, breaking things, stealing stuff, you know, just being naughty, like living my life. I I was blissfully unaware of the oppressive regime that I lived uh, under because in my head, the only oppressive regime was my mom. So, <laughs> so that's all I was dealing with. I, yeah, I, I really didn't have any stress when it came to that. Um, 
I know I know we're running out of time here, but I, I want to ask you um, a question. I think that is very, very important. So I have been interested in sort of trying to learn how to DJ. And I read that you were also a DJ back in the day. And I want to yeah. know what your go-to set list when you were spinning the ones and twos. Ooh, what was my go-to mm-hmm. set list? I mean, it's tough because most of the house songs that I played didn't have like real names. I didn't even know what they were called. <laughs> we just like made up the names. Yeah. Because they always had like weird arbitrary names. Like I remember like one of the most popular songs that we played was called Mindless Minorities in Terms of Thought. I was like, what, what is that? Yeah, what that's that? not catchy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not catchy at all. And so, and literally when I was a DJ, people would come up to me at like my little DJ stand or whatever. And they wouldn't even, they wouldn't know the name of the song. They'd be like, hey, Trevor, Trevor, can you play that song? The one that's... Then I'd be like, all right, all right, I'll play that song. No one knows what the song is called. And so um, that set list is hard. But when it comes to R&B and hip hop, let me think. Mm -hmm. Montel Jordan always did well for me. Mm -hmm. This is how we do. One Twelve was phenomenal. I love you. Couldn't so go wrong much. with Peaches and Cream. Yeah, Peaches and Cream was flames. Jagged Edge had some nice songs that you could mm-hmm. speed up and 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 really have fun with. Uh, Red Man was great at midnight. I'd always play Let's Get Dirty at midnight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was always really fun. Okay, before you get out of here, what what's next for you, Trev Trev? Can I call you that? <laughs> of course you can. Uh, what, what's next? What is next? I mean, you know, right now I, I focus on The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. I give that my heart and soul. I, I am so appreciative like for having this platform. It's a beautiful space to be in. I work with amazing people every day. I get to laugh literally from the morning until I do the show at night. I've got my arena tour, which is exciting because, I mean, you know, to be touring stand-up comedy in America in arenas again, that I didn't even dream of. I didn't think that was possible. You know, so to be in some of the rooms that have been played by, you know, the greats Mm -hmm. is really a blessing. So I'm on the road almost every single weekend, you know, uh, doing the loud and clear arena tour. And then, um, yeah, and then, you know, I'm going to start a little podcast just to chill out, hang out, like, sort of outside of the news cycle. Yeah. Just, you know, hang out with friends. Um, you know, that's that's going to be kicking off on Luminary. It's called On Second Thought. And, yeah, just, you know, I just, I like to enjoy anything where I can expand my brain, have fun with people, have conversations. Um, yeah, and enjoy every every blessing that I've been afforded in life, you know, because... Because that's what I really think every day is, is, is a blessing that I was never promised. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love that. And I just want to shout out that Born a Crime is being turned into a movie, which is very exciting. That's true. Yeah, it's been turned into a movie. Just got uh, released as in the children's edition, which is which is also cool. Young young readers edition, which is um, which Aww. is really exciting as well. Ugh. Okay, keep killing it, man. I'm so excited <laughs> you so for much. you. Thank, thank you for so having me. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> this is that part of the phone call where you don't know you don't know how to end it. How do you end it? Well, I just was like you looking. Know when you, you know when you're lying on the bed and you had a great conversation with someone, then you're like, "All right, well, 
Oh, I guess I'll, uh, what are you up to this week? Oh, I don't know. What are you doing? Oh, I guess we'll chat. Okay, okay, bye. Uh, thank bye. you so much. You're awesome. I appreciate All right, this. Chiefs. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. Okay, bye. It was so cool. He's such yeah, a delight. I wish we great. could have had more time. I know. I could talk to him for hours. He has such a um, smooth voice. Yes, the cadence is yeah. very nice. Yeah. It's I'm like, really good. It feels like a gravity blanket. I guess it's time for the credits, girlfriend. There's so many white guys. <laughs> I'm like, sure, do them. That's great. <laughs> Includes Amory Baldonado, Joanna Zalataroff, Paula Schumann, Joe Plord, Keegan Zima, Isaac Jones, Nora Wazwaz, and moi, Phoebe Lynn Robinson, also known as Michelle Obama's cousin. <laughs> I'm trying to spread that rumor because we're both Robinsons. Yeah, totally. Her maiden name is yeah. Robinson. We know there's only two. So you must be related. Yes. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. You can find some hot content of me and Trevor on Twitter at WNYC Studios. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Queen Phoebes. And if you still can't get enough of me, I'm going on the road with my stand-up tour. Go to PhoebeRobinson.com, find out where I'm going, and go get yourself tickets now. For real, I'm coming to you. Bye, babies. This has been BBC One. You have a great German accent. (laughs) Ha 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 ha!